Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is when life gives you Parkinson's. Joining me on this podcast journey is my wife and partner in Parkinson's, Rebecca Gifford. Today, we get to return to our Ohio roots as you talk with Brian Grant of the Brian Grant Foundation. Yeah, we were all born and raised in different parts of Ohio within a year of each other. Now, we're all 49 years old, pushing 50. <laughs> and uh, yet, we had different lives and journeys for sure. I was raised in idyllic Westerville, Ohio, the quiet, peaceful village in suburban Columbus. You were raised in the urban center of Dayton, Ohio. And Brian Grant grew up in a small rural community of Georgetown, Ohio, near the Ohio River, about 40 miles southeast of Cincinnati. Georgetown is a tiny town. It covers about four square miles of land and is home to just a few thousand residents. Brian Grant isn't the only notable person from there, believe it or not. Hmm. It is also the childhood home of U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant. Brian went to Xavier University in Cincinnati, taken by Sacramento in the first round of the 1994 NBA draft. And he'd go on to play for five teams over 12 seasons. The Kings, the Blazers, the Heat, the Lakers, and the Suns. He's been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease for 13 years. I'm guessing, honey, you're having a hard time with this one because... Mm-hmm. You're not sure if you want to be wearing your sports reporter hat or your Parkinson's podcast guru hat. Yeah, it's really difficult for me. So we're uh, thankfully, I brought both of them to the interview. So we are going to get a little wonky about the NBA, but that goes by quick. And then we're going to get into a lot of Parkinson's talk. Brian Grant, welcome to When Life Gives You Parkinson's podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, you got this new book out here uh, called Rebound uh, that you wrote with Rick Buecher that people will know from ESPN. Why'd you write the book? I just thought it was an interesting story. Um, you know, I can remember telling guys that I played with, um, you know, how it was kind of growing up and how it's a miracle that I ended up sitting next to them talking about, you know, growing up, college, then being drafted. So uh, I knew there was always a story there that I wanted to tell, but if I was going to tell a story, I needed to tell the whole story. So that it took me some time to feel comfortable with some of the, you know, ups and downs that I went through in life. And then once I felt comfortable, Rick was the obvious choice because he's known me. He's actually from Cincinnati himself. And um, I was glad I did. Yeah, you uh, grew up in Ohio. I grew up in Ohio. What's the best thing about Ohio for you? When I was growing up in Ohio, I, I can say that although I dealt with some negativity, it was a very sheltered community to grow up in. I mean, there was only 18, 1900 people when I was growing up here. I graduated with 63 people. Wow. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was nice, especially in the age where there's no internet and things like that, you know. Oh, thank God kids. there was no internet when we were growing yeah, up. <laughs> I know. I mean, you had to go outside and make your fun. Yeah, you, know? you did. And no and one was catching it on video. <laughs> No, not at all. Hey, I kind of feel sorry for these kids now. You know, they got lives the with them forever. That's it. That's uh, it. Did you? How much time did you spend at the Kings Island? Shoot, my mom worked for Mac Tools, and they'd always have uh, employee day once a year. So we'd go down once a year, almost every year that I can remember. Uh, and that was always our big family trip. You know, going to Kings Island. Man, that's fun. The beast. The beast, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The world's biggest wooden roller coaster. I tell you what, that thing is big and it's fast. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Uh it it uh I guess that's the first time that I felt anxiety and now I feel it more often than not. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Uh so uh it's twelve years in the NBA. Um, you know, that, that doesn't happen by accident. It must have been a lot of hard work uh, getting to the point where you were able to be drafted. So what was it in you that got you to where you were? I think because of where I was raised and, you know, having to come overcome certain things. Um, that like kind of uh, just racism. Yeah. You know, it was let's, racism. Let's call it what there it is, were, man. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of racism, but there were some very good people in that town that showed me that not everybody is ignorant about, you know, race. And uh, I also attributed to just learning how to make a dollar, working very, very hard, cutting tobacco, uh, baling hay, digging potatoes. It's hard work. 
Um, and those things, I think, carried over when I felt like I couldn't go anymore. Just those experiences of working really helped me push through. When did you start playing basketball? When did I? When did my cousins start allowing me to play basketball with them? Probably around my eighth grade year, because up until then, I was so sorry. You know, no one ever wanted to pick me up. And then plus I was playing football and football came natural to me. Whereas basketball, I, I couldn't get putting in, in that little square to make it go in. I'd put it in a square, but usually shoot over the other side. Uh, so I didn't really start playing basketball until my, my uh, eighth grade season. And then I played my freshman year in high school. Then when did you know you were good at it? Probably. It wasn't until I actually made it to the NBA. I mean, because, you know, just the road I had to travel, the things that had to happen for me to get there. I knew one thing, and that was that I was a very hard worker. That was something I could control. All the rest of it, I really couldn't control. I could come in and take jumpers. I ended up having a nice little short jump shot, but never really thought I was, you know, great. I thought I was a good player, but not great. And actually, when we played our last game my senior year and we got beat by Northwestern in the NIT, I was upset because I thought that was the end of basketball. I didn't think I had a chance of playing in the NBA. So why do you think they gave you a chance? Well, because I had a a really good agent, Mark Bartlestein, who runs Priority Sports, and he convinced me to take a chance, you know, go to the pre-draft camps. The one that it was Portsmouth, Phoenix, and Chicago. And uh, Phoenix and Chicago, you had to have an invite. So he got me in there. And then once I got there, it was just, I, you know, what else was I going to do? But go out there and just work as hard as I can. I mean, I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. How did you find out you got drafted? Well, once I went to the, the pre-draft camp, I was probably a late second rounder or overseas player. And then after that, I started having teams as low as the fourth pick have me come in for workouts. And when I started working out for teams that were like 15th or 16th, they were telling me, we love you, but we just don't think you're going to be there. And I go, where am I going to be? They were like, no, we think you'll go before that. And, that. and so me, I'm thinking they're blowing smoke up my ass. <laughs> and just like, you know, I'm just going to go to the next team, work out, and we'll see. And I I worked out for Sacramento, and it was a good one. They were being very nice. You know, they fed me a nice 48-ounce steak, which basically guaranteed that I would bomb my workout in L.A. the next morning, <laughs> which I did, and it's in the book. But – um you know, after that, my agent, you know, sent tickets and said, here, I want to fly you and your mom and your dad in. I said, I'm not going to the draft. He goes, what? You're going to be the high pick? You're going to be in the first round? I go, I don't want to be that guy that's sitting around thinking he's going to go. And then it's like the camera's <laughs> on my face, like, maybe I'll go 48th, you know. So, so I spent it I spent it in uh, Cincinnati with my family. And, I mean, that was just a special day because they had no clue. They only knew what I was telling them and then some news clippings. And I can remember getting a phone call when the sixth pick was on the board and I went behind the TV and answered it. And it was Sacramento saying, are you ready to come to Sacramento? I said, really? He said, are you around your family? I said, they're in the other room. He he said, "Uh, don't tell them, let it be a surprise. So I came out and I hung up the phone and I go, we're going 16th. And everybody's just, ah, my mom's like, ah, like doing a little fake uh, faint. (laughs) And so we're all just sitting there being loud. The seventh pick goes and then the eighth pick, uh, they come on the board and I say, hey, let's see who goes eighth because I think my buddy's going. With the eighth pick in the 1994 NBA draft, the Sacramento Kings select Brian Grant from Xavier University. Everybody just looked Woo! at me and was like, oh, my gosh. That's oh, amazing. my gosh. And it was just, man, it was just one of those moments. You know, I look back for, for my kids, and they said, you know, Dad, we wish you would have went there and, and, and shook David Stern's hand and spoke. I go, that's the exact reason I didn't go there, because I was 
too scared that I would get drafted and have to go up there and speak and, you know. So what's life like in the NBA as a player? It's fast-paced. Um, you get to know people whether you want to get to know them or not because you're around each other so so much. And I worked on trying to just build positive relationships with people that I was around, but it's not always easy because there's guys that you really like, but they really want your old spot. And so you can't be too kind or, you know, you got to always well, it's competitive, right? You're, yeah, you're it all, is, right. I mean, it's like yeah. the highest level of competition. Only 400 and some odd jobs a year in the NBA. So, you know, people are trying to make it. And, you know, it was fast paced from that from that standpoint. And then being able to travel and start seeing cities that I had never been in was great. And then just now you're kind of a celebrity a little bit and you need to handle that in the right or wrong way. How'd you handle it? In the right way, most of the time. But I definitely had my moments. For sure. <laughs> I did. So you got drafted. You, 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 you begin your career. What was the moment on the court where you realized, I'm good at this? Uh, my first game against uh, Seattle, because I was coming off the bench and – I went baseline on dead left strength and dunked on him. And I was going down the corner. Somebody slapped me on the butt. And I thought it was one of my teammates. I said, hey. And it's Sean Kemp going, oh, dog, that was nice. That was nice, man. I said, wait a minute. I'm going to show you one. And two two plays later, he comes down and it was Tomahawks. <laughs> and that's when I thought, if Sean Kemp is telling me that was nice, then maybe it is nice, you know? That's crazy. I mean, at the time, Sean Kemp, I was like, that was the man. I went down to him, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that's great. That's uh, probably you probably have so many great memories from from playing those those games. And what do you take away from the twelve years in the NBA? Twelve twelve years goes by like that. I mean, when you're in it, whether you're a high draft pick or somebody who walks on the team, it, it goes by in a blink of an eye. And when you're going through it, some people try to tell you that, and it's just like, nah, man, I'm gonna play. I'm going to be Udonis Haslam. Udonis Haslam is going on 19 years, I think. And uh, it doesn't work out that way for you. When you have the opportunity to do something while you're in the league, don't be lazy. Don't think you can get it done tomorrow. Do it right then because your career will wind down on you whether you want it to or not. You dedicated your book to Kobe and Gianna Bryant. Mm -hmm. And you said Kobe taught you how to be great. Well, you know, I – I'd had all-stars on my teams that I played with, uh, you know, Mitch Richmond. I got a chance to play with Scotty, Steve Smith, Rashid Wallace, Damon Stoudemire, J.R. Ryder, Jimmy Jackson, Gary Grant. I mean, just going on down the line. But he was like, you got your categories of people and then you got your superstars. He was in that superstar category and – the thing that I really respected about him was he was the first person to practice and the last one to leave after he got his treatments. And he was just so competitive. You know, we're lifting weights for the first time, and I try to pull down this rack of, you know, lap pools. I, I left like four plates on it, and I was able to get it twice. And he goes, oh, you're pretty strong. Can I, can I try? Puts the whole rack on, does it five times, lets it down, looks at me, and I go, have a good day, Kobe. <laughs> you know, just walked out. And um, he just, you know, he was he was young, but he was, uh, you know, his dedication. It was good to be, see that. It was it was good to see that, you know, for once in my my career. Did did you have a relationship with him? I had a. We talked. You know, uh, he invited uh, our family down to his his oldest daughter's birthday party. And I remember Karan Butler and I and Kobe all had our daughters on our laps and got a, a nice snapshot of it. You know, he used to ask me about uh, my marriage a little bit. And, you know, I kind of told him my story and he was like, what? <laughs> and <laughs> it's all in the book, yeah. folks. Just read the book. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it um, I got to know him. I got to hang out with him probably more than some people, but um uh, you know, were we best friends? I, I considered him a, a good friend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you thanked him for showing you greatness. What are you doing today to show others how to be great with Parkinson's? I just try to be an example as best I can for other, other Parkinson's patients. And if I don't have the answers, I steer them in the right direction because there's so many great organizations out there, especially in Portland. We have Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. They, they do a lot, a lot of good things. And, um, but I also try to be honest, like, you know, I'm not always optimistic. You know, sometimes I'm pessimistic. And I think it's important for people to hear that too. Because if I'm always upbeat, positive, and I'm not telling the whole story, then that's going to help half the people. And there's the other half saying, well, shit, I don't feel like him. So, you know. So did you feel symptoms while you were still playing basketball? I did. I just thought I was getting old and uncoordinated. It was hard to go off my left leg, which was my dominant leg. You know, when I went to the trainers about it, it was just, well, you're getting old, man. You got bad knees anyway. You shouldn't even be going off them, you know, that kind of stuff. When I did retire, the the depression was kind of like the kicker. You know, it was so deep and dark. I knew I'd go through some type of depression because I was ending my basketball career, but this was different. Mm -hmm. And it took a while for me to get help. And then then how long did it take for them to diagnose you with Parkinson's? Uh, I wasn't diagnosed by a neurologist until 2008, but in 2000, I think 2007 or 2000, in the 2006, I was on, I went to Portland to check on my house and I took my naturopathic doctor. His name was Philippe Manicom and um, we're flying back and I'm just like, man, I don't know what this twitch is. And, and he just looked at me and said, Brian, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to be honest with you because I love you. You have Parkinson's. And I got pissed. Like, man, don't be saying that stuff. I don't have Parkinson's. He's like, let me see your hand. And he did something and it went like that. And he goes, it's Parkinson's, but you can live with Parkinson's. You know, just giving me that yeah. speech. And and I was, at the time, was pissed. But later on, I was very grateful, you know. You were pissed at him? I was, yeah, because I, I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> Imagine that, right? I didn't want to hear it. I, I I wanted to hear that it was something that I can fix. And I, is there like surgery or, you know, right. a medication I can take that a cure it? And the more I started looking into it, you know, the more I realized that this was, you know, for life once I was clinically diagnosed. But I was already diagnosed by Philippe. How did you accept the diagnosis once it came officially? Um. It was tough. I think I had a couple major things going on in my life. My marriage was coming to an end. Was still dealing with the, the, you know, the depression. And so, when I was sitting at OHSU with Doctor Nutt, and he told me that, uh, you know, Brian, you have young onset Parkinson's. I believe. Kind of looked out the window, and they have this digital scale that they weigh you on when you come in there. And I was, I was pissed. Like, man, I, I gained that much weight. So when he said that, I looked at him, I said, okay, I may have Parkinson's, but that scale's wrong out there. And he just busted out laughing and we both did. And it kind of broke the ice a little bit. And it wasn't until like two or three days later that I, I got scared. Like, is this going to take me out? Do I got to prepare my kids for it? Things like that, that run through your mind because I didn't know anything about Parkinson's. I knew Michael J. Fox and Muhammad Ali had it. That was it. Me too. Yeah. So, so how did you um, begin to deal with it? The first thing I did was I took my prescription of Azelec and I started using it for about a month. And then I just said, forget this. I'm, you know, not because it wasn't working, but I just didn't, you know, I didn't know if the rewards were greater than the, the risk because, you know, if you drink wine or something or old cheese, it can mix with it drop your blood pressure. So I, I went the naturopathic route and I did that for like two or three years. And the good thing about it was, is the things we were doing, my neurologist actually started to get involved and that never really happens. But Dr. Nutt had an open mind towards it. And he saw that, you know, you're looking good every time you come in here and you're not on sentiment or anything. So yeah, that's kind of how it started. Did you, um, 
you mentioned wine. Did you? Because I know I kind of turned to the bottle a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of it, too. Self-medicating was definitely a part of it. I mean, the depression, the marriage going, just have Parkinson's. And I'm not giving anybody the green light to go out and get hammered or twisted. But, you know, I didn't always handle it the right way. You know, yeah. there were there were painkillers involved, um, alcoholism, and, you know, just fracturing relationships that were already fractured. Yeah, you know, it's this is... No, I don't think anybody's prepared for this diagnosis um, because we don't know what it is. I mean, like, like we've all heard of Parkinson's, but until you get it, you don't know what it is, what it means. Like I had this collection of symptoms that I've been collecting for like five, six, seven years. I didn't know that, you know, what was happening at my feet and my, my walk was related to the fact that I couldn't smell something to like, like you don't know these yeah. things are related. No. And then you get that diagnosis and you're like Parkinson's. And then you think Michael J and Muhammad Ali, and then you go, "Am I going to die?" <laughs> like that's, yeah. and, and 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 then you're like, "It's for life." You don't, there's no cure. How can that possibly be? There's nothing we can do. Like it just yeah. seems so oppressive at the time. Very oppressive, and also for me, I, I was so used to there being a surgery or a medication or a technique that can get me back on the court right. as quickly as possible. And now I'm dealing with something where I'm not playing, and it's something that, you know, when I go on the court and go up against somebody who was uh, a big name, I grip my teeth and just make sure I was try to be an animal out there. You can do that at Parkinson's, but it's just going to sit there and say, yeah, keep gritting your teeth. As soon as you're done gritting your teeth, now I'm going to have your cheek on it. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's one of those things that you just have to live with. And, you know, the vanity, if you have any of that, which I had a, a lot you have to learn how to shed it because, I mean, let's face it, I'm 6'9". I'm so grateful I haven't had any dyskinesias, but that, that's been one of my worries. I'm like, you know, not just I'm trying to imagine what that's going to be like for me. This disease has taught me to stay, stay prepared and alert for anything to happen because if you don't, then it's, you know, going to mess with, tipping you over that edge into depression. How did you start telling people about it? I didn't tell too many people at all. Uh, but when I didn't know what it was, I mean, I can remember going to a game and I was being honored with Jerome Kersey and Chris Dud Dudley. And I was in a tunnel with Jerome. I was so nervous that somebody was going to see my hand. I just grabbed him and said, Jerome, I have Parkinson's. He goes, what? I goes, look at my hand. You know, I don't want people to know. He said, uh, don't worry about it. Just follow my lead. I got you. And we went out there and we were throwing stuff to the crowd. And he just looked over at me and said, can't even tell, man. Can't even tell. And that meant a lot to me. And after that, it was like it took about another two months. And I said, all right, I, I got to go public with this because I, I had dreams of becoming a commentator, you know, anchorman or something. And there was no way I could go and do, you know, try uh, – practice runs or, or tryouts or whatever they do because I couldn't explain the chairman. And so yeah, trying to I hold the mic to do an interview. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How do you manage that? Because I mean, well, I'm not, I mean, this trouble. is the, listen, I'm not holding the microphone right now. I try to time my meds. So I'm, I'm on when I'm doing an interview, uh, but you know, like I, I've got to take naps in the middle of the day. I mean, like I, I I'm the boss now, so I, I don't have to be on the air, but like this, it's not easy. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, I, I tell people, you know, uh, having Parkinson's and, and maintaining for Parkinson's, the exercise, the diet, the, the mindset, the, the meditation, the whatever, whatever, the massage, whatever you have in your life, it's a full-time job because your, yeah. your symptoms change from minute to minute, to the hour to hour to day to day. They do. I mean, one minute you're, I'm shaking uncontrollably the next couple of days. I'm, people look at me and say, are you sure you have it? Uh, yeah, I sure. was like that for the first eight months. I'm like, I'd wake up and like, honey, I don't think I have it. Yeah. Because you got it. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. We had to get that truth slapped into our face. Yeah. We have it. Yeah. yeah. We have it. We've got it. The whole family's got it. Yeah. When you started telling people and you went public, I'm, I'm sure you were, you were, there was fear there about what the reaction would be. 
what was what was you, what were you anticipating, and then what was the reality? The only fear I had was I didn't want anybody to feel sorry for me. That that was like the worst thing for me is for somebody to oh, I feel so sorry for you. You know, I knew that it was going to be hard for certain people to contact me because I wouldn't know what to say to an old buddy if he told me he had Parkinson's. It's not that I wouldn't want to say something positive. It's just that I wouldn't want to say something that offends him. So I didn't hear from a lot of people. And that, that kind of hurt my feelings a little bit, that certain people that I thought would reach out didn't reach out. But then again, I was surprised by some people that did reach out, like Carl Malone. You know, when he reached out, I was like, wow, I tell you, you just never know. Do you take any of the lessons that you learned in basketball into dealing with Parkinson's? Yeah, absolutely. Being able to work with other people and have a team of, of people that are all connected. So it's not like if I'm talking to this person, these three people don't know what the hell is going on. You know, if there's not that line of communication. So I would say teamwork is definitely one of them. Uh, just realizing also that in basketball, you're not going to win every game, but you still go out and make the effort. And with Parkinson's, I'm making the effort knowing that I can win some games, but eventually, you know, it comes back around and it's going to win. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think the, the teamwork part of it, that's, that's the, that's the biggest yeah, thing. I mean, but you're pretty good at that. You know. <laughs> teamwork group of individuals who also suffer from it, being open to, to people, you know, early on, man, it was a scary thing. I don't know about for you, but I think the first support group I went to in Portland was at a, retired person's place. Isn't that the and case? So <laughs> like, I oh, was 30. Man. I was 30. Shoot. I think I was 35. <sighs> and uh, I went in there. The next youngest person was 75. <laughs> so they're going around talking about all the things they're struggling with. I'm like, wow. You know, so yeah. you got to also know where to go. I mean, if, if you go there and you're in your 30s and the youngest person is 75, that's probably not the place for you. Music's been important in your life. Do you use music uh, in dealing with Parkinson's? I do. Um, you know, when I'm really going or I've got a lot of high anxiety, yeah, I like to listen to, uh, like, yeah, you heard of Bill Evans, who was a pianist back in the 60s. I got his Jazz Around Midnight CD that I picked up when I was in college, not knowing what it was. And first I was like, what is this? And then I like just stayed back like, man, this is pretty cool. So I, I, I like music uh, to help with my mood because there's certain songs that I can listen to that just bring you up like this one, I'm sure it could work for anybody. Happy by Pharrell, you know, listen to that one. Great. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Come along if you feel like a room without a roof. I'm too happy. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't dance well, man. I, I got no rhythm. I used to be able to cut a rug. I can't lie. Back in the day. <laughs> but not, not anymore. I, I cut my knee or my wrist or Ugh. my elbow if I fall down. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, music's interesting. I, I actually, I find music really, um, it, it, it's a mood control. It can, uh, help you sleep. It can, it, it can help you for me. It just, it allows, it, it can be meditative. Even, um, mm -hmm. I get into these zones up in my little bubble and I just, it's like, I I'm just listening to music just sort of makes my body feel good. Yeah. I've got a little outdoor sauna in my, most uh, outdoors is in my garage, and when I go in there, I can I can do about forty five minutes to an hour because I've got nice mellow music going in it. You know, kind of takes the pain away. Like I'm not that type of person that listens to high energy music to do cardio. I listen to slow music, mm. and it just to me it takes my pain off my uh, thought off. You know, being fatigued. Something may be hurting, but I'm zoned out into the song. Yeah, let's talk about symptoms here. You, where, where, where do you feel pain? I feel it like my tremor all started in the left side. So I feel a lot of pain like in, in the shoulders. 
like where my biceps tendons attach, a whole lot of pain in this shoulder. Um, sometimes, you know, when I'm exercising a little hard, I get a shift in the hips. So I get, you know, mm. back issues. I've been to the doctor and been checked for diabetes three different times over the past year and a half. And my um, results come back great. But I've got neuropathy in my Me too. Toes. Yeah. And it's just, it's weird. I'm like, damn. And it changes throughout the day. I mean, there's some parts that I can't feel at any time, but others um, that kind of comes and goes. And I'm trying to figure out what that is. You get the numbness and then you get the fire. Yeah. More so the numbness for me. And then my big, my big toe <laughs> seems to want to swell at the knuckle. So I thought I had the gout, but everybody who's had gout said, no, you ain't got the gout. If you had the gout, you'd know about it. <laughs> so, Short-term memory problems? Oh, my God. Oh. I was yesterday at some friend's house that I've known since I was a little boy. And I asked about his two daughters. I said the younger daughter's name. And then the older one, I was like, they're like, what's wrong? I said, don't tell me I'm going through that phase where I can't remember. I see her face. I can see the name, but I can't say it. And then they finally said it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm dealing with short-term memory loss. Yeah, it's 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 so frustrating because you you you're right. You can see it. You actually can see the word. You just can't say it. Yeah, it's exactly how it feels. Uh, or I feel like I'm in, I'm looking through a filing cabinet, but I'm I'm in the wrong area of the library or something. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, so when I forget like coworkers' names, it's like so embarrassing. It's like, well, I got Parkinson's. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I can say this as an apology, but my first director of my foundation, she was actually my director when it was uh, a foundation for um, funding family with terminally ill kids. And then I came back and we restarted, reopened it, and it was for Parkinson's. So I was in an interview when I was going down the list of people, and I said, yeah, I also want to thank my first director and i was like i'm on a zoom call like this going man i can't remember I, <laughs> she's out there I, I, i've got short-term memory loss man <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it, but that like something like that's embarrassing it know? is but the, what, what do you do about it like it's just... you know i i actually had dinner at her and her husband's house probably four weeks ago and i brought it up and she goes it's okay, man. I knew you remembered me. I was just like, thanks for being nice to me right now. I'd yeah. have been like, how the hell did you forget me? Right. I've only known you like 20 years. So. Um, anxiety and depression. I do have it. I take. How uh, do you deal with anxiety? I mean, if I'm going on into an inter interview, like person to person, it's tough because I get into a situation where I get there and all of a sudden my first indicator is sweat. Mm. I start sweating really heavy and then uh, my mouth dries. Uh, when I was doing speeches, if I didn't have a bottle of water up there at the podium, when I was giving the speech, I would literally start going and so you, can somebody bring me water? I'm serious. <laughs> like, like super dry mouth. But um, I just try to get a quick breath and, and kind of just calm myself down, take myself to a place where I can have a moment of silence with myself. Does it always work? No, but sometimes it does. I mean, I've been to my son's football games uh, down at Oregon State, and I've been in the crowd, and you know, people are very nice. Hey, Brian, thank you for what you do, these types of things. But after a while, it kind of like, I feel like eyes on me and I, I'll catch that sweat. And then, you know, I've had to leave a couple of times just because the anxiety got so heavy, you know, when I shouldn't have anything to worry about, there's nothing to really worry about, but I tell myself that, but I still worry, you know, you, you talked earlier about how you use some uh, uh, natural path, you know, alternatives to cinemat. And uh, you mentioned in the book that you do massage and acupuncture. Uh, do you, have you ever done cupping? Uh, Philippe used to do cupping on 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much it helped me. I mean, the thing that really helped me when I was in Miami and I was always so tired, like after games, I'd come home just so beat up. And he'd come over, man, and have me on his table and put the needle in the eye, mm-hmm. put the one in the ear, and then he put another one, and then he turned the ear one on, I'd just be like, out. And yeah. that's, I mean, before him, I didn't really believe in acupuncture that much because I'd been with a, I saw a couple ac- acupuncturists. This one guy put all these needles in me and puts little clips on them and turns on a little tens unit and says, see, I've hit the nerves. That's why you're wrist is jumping. I go, dude, I play in the NBA. I get treatment every day from little machines like that. You know, it's it's jumping because you're sending a current to it. Right. And so I've, I've had some bad ones, but he was just the best overall, all around uh, doctor that I've ever had. Do you do any other alternative uh, therapies? Uh, not anymore. I I was doing so many back then and it was working. But I got to the point where I was like, wait a minute, I'm paying $3,500, almost $4,000 a month. Now, I know everybody can't afford to pay this amount of money. And then I was taking these four packs of pills that had like 20 pills in them four times a day. And I was like, is is that healthy? He's like, oh, yeah, your body can get rid of it. I'm like, it got to the point where when I take take the pills, there were a couple pills that were like capsules with these little round yellow balls in it. So I could hear them going down like, and it just, it just started making me nauseated. <laughs> and uh, that's when I was done. But the, the good stuff was when I'd have IVs of vitamin C, vitamin A, uh, glutathione, you know, th- those, those were good. What, what do you get out of having the foundation? Like personally, like emotionally. When I got into the fight against Parkinson's, it was because of two individuals that I really admired. That was Muhammad Ali and Michael J. Fox. Um, and I've never ever really been the type of person to sit on the sidelines. And so I got into it to help people, but I didn't know what I wanted to do to help. You know, it, it wasn't there immediately when I started the foundation because didn't need more funding for research. Michael J. Fox, foundation was was handling that um the ali center down in phoenix was handling with patient care and so it took us a while to kind of figure out what we wanted to do we had a great gala our first gala it was i mean star studded a lot of old timers came out a lot of young guys came out it was great but then it just got to the point where we needed to find what it is what our niche would be in this fight. And then we just went to exercise and nutrition, which, you know, was an obvious choice. When I used to have abs, I don't have them anymore. I got a, I got a keg now. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. And once we got into that and I, uh, hired Nick Katrina call, she might be one of the most intelligent individuals I know. She, matter of fact, she is the most intelligent individual I know. She is just very driven and smart, and she knows what she wants to do, and she knows how to troubleshoot to get to it. And uh, it it gives me, first of all, something to look at and see what it is I need to do for myself, but also make that information privy to everyone, anyone who wants it. You know, you don't have to be Brian Grant or Michael J. Fox to get it. You just go my website or other people's websites who are doing similar things and you can get that information trying to work together more so than apart, you know, because foundations are about raising money to be able to fund your, your programs. And so a lot of times I, I think the one thing that we've done is we've tried to reach out to other organizations to see how we can team up rather than, say, well, they do that. We don't do that. Come over here. Right. It's like, we don't do that very well, but they, they do a really good job of doing that. So. Well, that's, that's why we created the PD Avengers, uh, which is patient led. Uh, and you are now a member of the PD Avengers. So thank you for joining the PD Avengers. 
Um, it, it, it basically uh, came out of, uh, we were reading the book, Ending Parkinson's Disease uh, by Dr. Ray Dorsey and Michael Oaken and Todd Shearer and Boz Bloom. And uh, we decided that we needed to take some action uh, because there was a lack of urgency for finding the cure or, or treat, you know, advanced treatments, getting medicines to Africa, all these things that we know are issues. Nobody was really you know, pushing for it. And that, that, that urgency needs to come from the patient community. Um, and, and then as part of that, we started inviting different organizations to the table saying, let's partner up. But if you're going to partner with us, we're going to tear down the silos. We're all equal at the table. And, and so once the, a year, we're going to have a, a campaign that we all participate in. But we, we, you know, if, if you're about wellness and, 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 you know, exercise, diet, whatnot, then you work through that channel. If you're about research, you work that channel. But it's going to be a global message that you activate locally. And everybody, we have over 50 organizations now on board that from Michael J. Fox to you, you, your, your, your foundation, to Davis Finney to Parkinson's UK. We've got, I just signed somebody in Slovenia, in, in, in Africa, in Spain, and like we, we, all over the world. We've got 62 different countries where there's PD Avengers now uh, that, are, that are fighting the good fight, that are you, you, united in Indy Parkinson's. And it's so exciting to me to be a part of a global campaign. I was sitting at the table at the WHO two weeks ago talking about Parkinson's with the World Health Organization and we're creating new standards and guidelines for the United Nations member states. This is what we can do if we add urgency to this fight. Yeah, but Tim and uh, Sonia Matha are working with you too. Yeah, they're they're my co-founders. So the three of us, the three amigos, we started that, and uh, you know we're we're up over three thousand members now, and and growing. We just need a million by the end of next year, so we're going to need your help with getting the word out there, Brian. We definitely can help with that. <laughs> definitely, you know the collaboration, the the teamwork. You'd be the perfect coach. You you know teamwork better than anybody. Like the teamwork that we need to have to to battle Parkinson's is is vital. It is vital. Um, we got to knock down the walls, quit thinking about who's getting this dollar, who's not getting this dollar. We need to come together and um, just think of it like this. What if Iron Man had sat out in right. the other adventures? You know what I'm saying? Iron Man could have been out, uh, the raccoon from... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the raccoon wasn't there. What, what would they do? That, that's it, yeah. Yeah, no, so, I, I, I know, but that's that's the whole PD Avengers philosophy is that we all have our own superpower that we bring to the table. Whatever your talent is, is your superpower. And, and every so, and every every superpower counts. It's not just a few. We need them all. We need them all. We need everybody. Uh, we've got three thousand plus members right now. Mm-hmm. We're gonna need a million by the end of twenty twenty two. That's our goal. I know it seems ridiculous. You're like, you have 3,000, you want a million, but like things can happen exponentially pretty quick. I mean, look they at COVID. Can. Like we came together with for COVID real quick. You know, I, I look at that and I was like, man, I, we came up with a cure for COVID. Why can't we come up with a cure for Parkinson's? No, but it's, uh, it's, it's such an honor to have you as part of that. And Davis Finney is part of it. And Michael J. Fox Foundation just signed on. And I mean, like we're all working together because we're all working for the same reason. Absolutely, and happy to be What's a part that, of it. What do you see in the future? Like, how do you how do you move forward with with positivity and with hope? Well, I move forward with positivity and hope when I look at my kids. You know, being able to be here, be in their lives, and influence them the best I can. Uh, I've got six ad- adult kids, and I've got my two littles, and so that's. I mean. That keeps me going. It also keeps me going when I see other people that are in the, our our home group suffering from Parkinson's, and when I'm suffering from something, being able to go to them and get advice. That's it. I, I try to be optimistic about a cure coming down the line. And you know what? If a cure does come down the line, it probably won't be in our lifetime. I don't think, but it, I could be wrong. So until then, I just take what's thrown my way. I mean, as you know, today it's this, the next thing you know, it's swallowing. The next thing you know, 
can't get to the bathroom in time. Can't so, wait for that. That'll be fun. <laughs> I, I'll be an investor in Depends. <laughs> things right on. <laughs> but uh, no, just just to stay the stay the course and stay in the fight. Just yeah. to never get out of the fight. Your book says soaring in the NBA, battling Parkinson's, and finding what really matters. So I ask you, what really matters? What really matters in my life are my kids and you know, allowing them to be my caregivers as well. Um, you know, when we first came up with that title, I, I, I didn't kind of know, okay, what is important? You know, it, it's important to be alive, it's important to eat, you know. But it was going through the process, especially of COVID, having everyone under the same roof, really getting to know my adult kids because I'm watching them interact. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that about these guys. And realizing that I'm not always the best at letting them try to help me out. You know, they, they always want to help. And I need to be more open about that. And, you know, Sonia's daughter and two of my sons, you know, started the kids of Parkinson's. And uh, I mean, that's just that's just amazing. Our, my kids range from 26 to 18, so they're they're young adults. And you know, when they were younger, it was, uh, "Hey, can you get me a soda out of the fridge? Why can't you get it? I got the Parkinson's. Come on, can you help me?" Say, "No, you can't play that card anymore." Yeah. So, but no, it's it's nice to give them uh, an avenue to be able to come down to help you know my kids are my caregivers that's awesome how's how's it feel to say that out loud it feels amazing because um, you know i have a great relationship with them and it shows me how much they really love and care care for me and want to see me do well same as i want for them it's amazing well, I, I really appreciate your time today and uh, for all, everything that you do for the Parkinson's community. Uh, we really appreciate you. Let me say the same to you for everything that you're doing for the Parkinson's community as well. And thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. You can find out more about the Brian Grant Foundation at BrianGrant.org. His book, Rebound, Soaring in the NBA, Battling Parkinson's and Finding What Really Matters, is available everywhere you buy books. Rebecca joins us now. Uh, honey, what resonated with you? Well, first of all, Brian Grant is just a lovely person, mm-hmm. and he shares our mindset of sharing information and getting things done and working together and cooperation and all the uh, inspiration for PD Avengers. So I have a lot of gratitude listening to him. But I also appreciated very much the commonality of his story with so many stories that we've heard your Parkinson's story. It's a reminder that Parkinson's, as well as a lot of other conditions and diseases, is the great equalizer. It's it's rather universal, even though everybody's journey is different. It's just, it's it smells the same. He's a celebrity. He's a premier athlete. He's accomplished so much. He has an image and a brand and all those things. And yet, his symptoms, you share a lot yeah. of the same symptoms, and they're just as humbling. I like that he talked about vanity and letting go of the vanity and the ego that is such a part of his industry, and that he wouldn't have been able to engage in the Parkinson's community or in the world and all the things that he's doing now if he hadn't been able to let that go. And that's something that we experience all the time. If you worried about how people might react to your funny walk or that you might be a little shaky or a little off or maybe not answer a question quickly enough, you would never go out into no. the world, right? And that's something that people with Parkinson's and people who have other um, visible disabilities deal with every day. Yeah, his vulnerability is really inspirational. He talks about depression and anxiety and, and you know, alcoholism and, you know, pills and like just sort of like he's like, yeah, it's all part of the journey. Like, it's like right. you know, I found my way. I think I'm finding my way and I have the support of my kids and that's great. And like, it's just like he's just sort of real uh, nonchalant about it. But like, it's it's a tough journey. And no matter where you start or how much money you have or whatever, 
you still have to walk through the fire. I, I, th- I think it's really interesting that as an athlete, he, he gets psyched up by listening to jazz instead of like hip hop or, or hard rock. Or- yeah, you would think that the adrenaline would serve him, but we know that adrenaline isn't always a good thing when it comes to Parkinson's. <laughs> so, so we all have to figure out a way to mellow ourselves out and whatever music does that for you. Yeah, so uh, Bill Evans is going to be downloaded on my phone for my next exercise routine. <laughs> Bill Evans is pretty cool. Special thanks to Brian Grant once again for joining us on the podcast and to his CEO and executive director, Katrina Call, for setting it up and hooking us up. So thank you, Katrina. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast. Our story producer is Dila Velazquez, sound designed by Greg Schott. And special thank you to the NBA, Bill Evans and Verve Records, Pharrell Williams, Happy, Backlot Studios, I Am Other, and Columbia. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's, you are not alone. Parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partners, the World Parkinson Congress 2022 in Barcelona, Spain. Make plans to be there with us next June. Go to WPC2022.org for details. The Webby Award-winning Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's podcast, hosted by Larry Gifford. Available on Apple Podcasts and at MichaelJFox.org. PD Avengers. Ready to help end Parkinson's? Join us now at PDAvengers.com. Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. SpotlightYOPD.org. And I would really appreciate it if you would share this podcast with someone you know. Personal recommendations are the most effective way to grow our audience and raise awareness of Parkinson's disease. Be sure to follow this podcast wherever you are listening to it right now so it automatically downloads when a new episode is released and you won't miss any. It's so easy. Please feel free to comment and ask questions of us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or email us at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time.